Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. Molly here. Today, Clarissa and I invited Sandra Elia back to speak about her new book. If you've tried every diet on the market to no avail, if eating and weight are affecting your physical health, your career, your relationships, your mental health, and your self-worth, then Sandra's book, Never Enough, is for you. Equal parts self-help and memoir, this book contains everything you need to develop healthy relationships with food, others, and most importantly, yourself. Certified food addiction counselor and founder of the Food Addiction Recovery Program, Sandra Elia delves deep into her own tenuous battle with compulsive eating and lays out a scientifically proven plan for you to achieve peace with food once and for all. This book isn't just another trendy diet that delivers temporary results, but ultimately leaves you feeling depleted. It's a lifestyle guide that prioritizes your spiritual and emotional well-being to achieving physical vitality. So if you're ready, take Sandra's hand and allow her to lovingly guide you down the path to food serenity. In this episode, we catch up with Sandra. What has she been up to since our 2021 interview? The book and what inspired her to write it? Her three pillars of food serenity? We talk about weight stigma and breaking up with the scale. We discuss spirituality. We talk about support networks and community, self-love, and so much more. Welcome back, Sandra. Awesome. Well, thank you for being with us again, Sandra. This time it's even more exciting because you have lots of good news to share with us. But before we talk about this really fun thing that we want to talk about, it's, I know that you've been busy, like running programs, like obesity, Canada, all of these things. Can you just kind of catch us up? Like what's been going on over the last like two years since we last spoke? Oh my gosh. So much has gone on. My family often makes fun of me. They're like, what are you doing now? What what business cards do you have? What positions have you taken? And it's really because the work that I do is my greatest passion. It never, ever, ever feels like work to me. It is what I enjoy doing. It's my inspiration. It energizes me. So yes, as you mentioned, I am the chair of Obesity Matters. So that's a nonprofit organization And we serve our community and our community is specifically people living with obesity. And what we endeavor to do is educate them on the fact that obesity is in fact a disease and that there are evidence-based treatment options for people that are ethical and have research to back it up, Um, that we also do events to create community. So our events, we just had one for World Obesity Day. They're fun. They're inclusive. People feel like they can be themselves. And we advocate for people living with obesity so that they can have the treatment that they deserve. So Obesity Matters, I'm the chair. I'm I'm very excited to be a part of that organization. It's an all-women led organization. We all have lived experience with obesity. So we we know our hearts and the minds of our community. I launched the Academy of Food Addiction Recovery, which you are both a part of. And that's a three-month program where people can go through that program and learn from the best experts in North America, like both of you. 
what else have I been up to? So much. I am going to be a speaker at a Canyon Ranch. You may know Canyon Ranch. They have four or five locations. And so I'm going to do a collab with them and do a retreat for food addiction recovery. Yeah, lots and lots besides also writing a book. <laughs> yeah, tell us about the book. So like what inspired the book and tell us more, like what will listeners gain from reading this book? So the book, it's so interesting. I really believe that the universe is always talking to us and pointing us in the right direction. It uh, gives us little whispers and little hints. And so before the pandemic, many times people either assumed I was an author, introduced me as an author, <laughs> or asked me, what book have you written? And after that, it happened about a half dozen times. I'm like, I get it. I need to write a book. And then unfortunately, you know, the world shut down. <laughs> we hit a pandemic. That's when I started the process. And like everybody else, I thought, hmm, we're going to be locked down for a few months. <laughs> And why not? Now is the time to write a book because I'll have all this extra time. People were writing books, running triathlons, doing all the things that we didn't have time to do. And in a way I needed, I mean, in Ontario, we were locked down for a good solid two years. And a very good friend of mine, she, Dr. Sandy Van, she actually wrote some advanced praise. She said, you know, it's a good thing that you're such an optimism and you believe anything is possible because that's the way I started this book without belief. And it was one of the hardest things <laughs> that I have done, hands down. I had no idea that it was going to be that much work, that much soul searching, that much reliving of my childhood traumas, because that's often the food addict's story. And I wanted people to be able to relate to that, to know that I've walked in your shoes. And the only way to tell a story, especially from the childhood perspective, is to relive it. And that's very difficult to do, but I knew that I wanted to do that. I wanted to go back to my little girl self and look through those eyes and see those things again and experience those things and start to make the connections of when food became my solace, my safety, my comfort, how a lot of ways food helped me through those really traumatizing times. I always say, you know, food is comforting and then over time food becomes an addiction and then eventually it becomes unmanageable. So the book, I, I'm glad I did it when I did. And as hard as it was, I know there's another book in me. I just know it. This book is called Never Enough. And the Never Enough has two meanings. So I think women especially, and that's mainly my, my following is women. And of course, men are always welcome. But we are plagued with never enough. I can never be enough. I can't be thin enough, pretty enough, educated enough, smart enough. I just can't give enough. There's just not enough that I can do to make everybody happy. And all of those never enoughs often lead me to want to self-soothe and self-comfort. And then you fill in the drug of choice, right? With shopping, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. And then that substance becomes never enough. Never. My substance of choice, there will never be enough of it to make me feel like I am enough. And even with the book, when I started working with my publisher, you know, she's like, oh, so the book's about food addiction. And I went, oh, no, no, I can't. <laughs> I can't talk about food addiction. I, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I don't have anything to offer people. And, and this is, of course, after five years of running my programs in medical clinics. And, and it was exactly what it had to be. And that's why oftentimes you need a village around you to see the things that you cannot see. So amazing how it all kind of came together, right? Like 
just once the dominoes were set up and as you started taking risks, they just kind of started tipping over, right? Like how it kind of can start out slow and then the momentum builds. So I imagine there is another book in you and that there's (laughs) so much more coming. So, you know, just as a recap for me, or maybe for anybody who's never heard you speak before, you know, what are your three pillars of food serenity? Yeah. So that's the subtitle, three pillars of food addiction recovery. So it's, I often call it the house of recovery. And so to build a house, you really need a strong foundation. And for so many of us who are, who have any kind of addiction or food addiction, our foundation is, is not solid. A lot of us grew up in homes that we were not seen, we were not heard, we were not loved, maybe we weren't even safe. And so the foundation is really about an internal environment, an environment where you can succeed. And so most humans succeed in an environment that is gentle, that is kind, that is nurturing. That is where we flourish as humans. And so that first step is really about forgiveness of where you are. It doesn't matter where you are in life. You are always deserving of love. You are always deserving of good things. You are always deserving of forgiveness. And you have to give that to yourself because now we're adults and you know maybe people let us down when we were children and, and weren't there for us. And now we have to parent ourselves. And so I always, one of my guiding posts for my work is a quote by William Goldberg that says, I've never seen a person change in a constructive manner when motivated by shame, guilt, or hate. So if somebody comes to my program motivated by shame, guilt, or hate, I tell them that the three pillars are going to be very difficult to build upon that foundation. And love is always energizing. So once we can get that foundation down, the three pillars, I call it the three-legged stool. And when you ignore one of the legs, it's hard to stay up in your recovery. So the first leg is really eliminating your trigger foods. I generally don't tell people what their trigger foods are. We know it's mostly refined sugar and you know ultra-processed foods. Rarely have I worked with somebody who's triggered by natural single-ingredient foods. I'm sure that exists. But generally, trigger foods are factory-made, nutrient-poor, disease-causing foods that have been chemically engineered to overwhelm our reward center. And for some of us, we're susceptible and we become addicted to those foods. And it's hard for the food addict because food is so widely accepted. And you may know many people in your lives that can eat these foods without any repercussions, right? And it's I always equate that to the person living with alcoholism, watching someone else enjoy a glass of wine and say, but why can't I? Why can't I be that person? We don't have the answer to that. So the person, you know, I ask each person to understand what are your trigger foods, foods that, that you obsess about. Once you start, it's hard to have a reasonable portion and often lead to an overeating episode. And you likely have evidence of this, not hundreds of times, maybe even thousands of times. And we do this one meal at a time. I'm very clear. Don't think in terms of the rest of your life because one of the biggest predictors of behavioral change in the future is something called self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is the belief that it's possible. If I ask, you know, Molly or or a Clisette, I always hear your name, Clarissa, (laughs) uh, you know, can you do something for the rest of your life, right? What happens? Even if you found your dream job, but you had to sign that you were going to do your dream job for the rest of your life, your anxiety goes up. You're not sure. It's like really frightening. But if I ask you, can you do your dream job for a day? Yeah, hell yes. And 
I need that to be the same answer when it comes to trigger foods. Is it a good, you know, seven out of 10, eight out of 10, as opposed to the rest of your life is zero. And what I've learned now as I'm growing in my career is we wake up in the morning and we all try to hit bullseye in our life, right? And if we think about food addiction in specific, I try to hit bullseye, meaning I stay away from my trigger foods. And those days feel amazing and they're so rewarding and oh, it's just good. And then there are days when we miss bullseye. And I'm learning now that those days are even richer because those are the days when you practice self-compassion and self-love and you realize you're still worthy even though you miss the bullseye. So much more richness because I need my clients to feel like winners because for so many of us, if you've struggled with your weight or you're eating for decades, right? What does it do? It chips away at your self-esteem and your self-worth. I need you to feel like you're winning. You win. When you hit bullseye, you just feel great. So I don't even need to help you on those days. When you miss, you need to feel just as good. The second pillar is developing a mindfulness and spiritual practice. And so mindful, you know, addictive eating is often mindless eating. And so one of the remedies is definitely mindfulness and communing with our food. You know, even if we went back 80 years ago, people communed with their food because there was no distraction. There wasn't even electricity. My mother was born in the 1930s in Southern Italy. At the dinner table, they just ate <laughs> and they talked because they didn't have electricity and they, of course, didn't have smartphones and television. And they were able to engage all their senses when they were eating. And this is a powerful tool for a lot of people. And the spirituality for me, because, you know, in my book, I don't want it to be about religion. And certainly it is about religion for many people out there. But in the context of my book, it's about remembering who you really are. Remembering that you came into this world, this perfect, beautiful little being. You had a magnificence inside of you. You had the spark of the divine inside of you. It's still there, right? It hasn't gone anywhere. Stuff has happened to a lot of us, scary stuff, traumatizing stuff, sad stuff, and we lose that connection. And Or maybe the world tells us we're not worthy and we forget that. So spirituality is just a remembering, a remembering of who you are and the way you came into this world. And the third pillar is community. I think COVID taught us that, you know, when we were living where everything was taken away from us, right? Our community, our outings, our vacations, what did we miss the most? human contact. That was the most difficult part. I, I I didn't care about anything else, like eating out. No, I just wanted to be in a room filled with people that I enjoy and love. And the top of the house, so now we have the foundation, the three pillars, and the top is to have a peaceful relationship with food. What brings you peace? The top of the house is not I want to be, you know, lose weight or I want to be thin or, you know, those could be beautiful byproducts, but I find when the aim and the focus is peace with food, you're able to get there because, you know, as we're going to talk about a little later, the scale is the most inaccurate measure of your success. So, you know, I was talking at a conference recently and there was doctors and dietitians and psychologists and inevitably, and I love dietitians, <laughs> but inevitably they always raise their hand and they say to me, Sandra, it sounds like you're labeling some foods as bad and some foods as good. And I'm like, no, actually, I am not. I am asking people to tell me what brings them peace. Because if I work with a food addict and they tell me that a bag of Doritos is incredibly peaceful, they open it, 
they eat it, they enjoy it. When they're done, they're done. They go on with their day and they're peaceful. I would say keep eating them because it's peaceful. I'm talking about food that creates a cycle and a hunt for craving and for more that ends up with remorse and guilt and self-hatred. So that's all I'm, I'm saying. I don't think any food is necessarily bad. Though we have a lot of evidence to suggest <laughs> that refined sugar causes a lot of diseases. So we could call it disease causing, but I agree. I'm not here to say anything's good or bad. I'm here to ask you what brings you peace, vitality, and health. Yeah, I love that because I I mean, even when we were talking to Ann Biasetti and she was saying, like, would you want foods in your house that are basically bullying you? right? Would you invite a bully into your house? No, you wouldn't, right? And a lot of, I think some of the controversy we hear in the food addiction realm is all still about weight release, right? And being a certain size. And even in some of the 12-step programs, we hear a right-sized body. And so I know you devoted several chapters in your book to this. So how do we let go of that scale and number and break free of this you know, diet central cycle that we are... It's, it just seems to be like we're spinning all the time on. Yes. So I used to sit on the board of Obesity Canada. So they're the authoritative voice on actually in the world now on obesity treatment and definition. And so they, when they came out with the practice guidelines for treating obesity, it's the first time ever that there's an actual template for doctors to follow when treating obesity. They talked about BMI. So BMI was created in the 1960s by insurance companies and has very little to do with health. So you could take a bodybuilder, for example, who would have, a, a, if you took their height and their weight, they would be classified maybe as obesity class of two or three. And three is quite serious with lots of comorbidities, but they're healthy. So what the, the definition by the practice guidelines, by science, is that it depends where you carry your weight, right? So if we carry our weight in our midsection, it is more dangerous simply because you could have comorbidities like diabetes, fatty liver disease, and nobody wants those things. Now, if you carry your weight like me in my butt, in my hips, in my thighs, you can be perfectly healthy. You're just a different body size or shape, I should say. And we have to get over ourselves and realize there's a lot of definitions for beauty. There's not one standard of beauty and there's not one standard of health. So for example, there's African American ladies who typically carry their weight in beautifully in their butt and their hips and their thighs, and there's nothing wrong with them, literally nothing wrong with them. So if you were to go to a 12-step meeting and say to somebody who culturally carries their weight differently than our standard North American you know, idea, tall and thin, that they're not in recovery, that it's, first of all, incredibly offensive and not based in science and not true at all. And why is there only one standard of health or beauty? That to me seems ridiculous. And we need to just catch up with the times. I think a lot of us have been brainwashed into believing there's only one view of health and beauty. You know, East Indian people from that part of the world tend to be quite thin and unfortunately have a lot of comorbidities that come with obesity. So yeah, I just, 
I think it's a decision we all have to make. There's many, many roads to recovery. And what used to make me quite sad because I used to work in a recovery house is that people would be chronic relapsers. So they could get three days and relapse and they could get, you know, three weeks and relapse, a month and relapse. And to me, that really signaled that the complete abstinence model didn't work for them. But they were they were never given that option. They were said that there was only one way to recover. And so and there they were stuck for years trying to fit into this one model. And it broke my heart and it was breaking their spirit because they internalized that they were complete failures in this area, whereas if they had been shown a different model. And that's actually something I learned from both of you about the harm reduction model and that there's actually more science to prove that that is more successful than the complete abstinence. And so for those of you who are listening that are food addiction professionals, understand that there's room at the table for everybody. And you have to give everybody a voice. And that is also how I was able to forge some partnerships here in Canada, because I I did sit at the table with physicians who said, listen, you got to have pharmacotherapy. I'm like, okay, let me listen to this. Surgery had to be part of it. Okay, let me listen to that. Harm reduction. Because when we don't do that, we do a disservice to the struggling food addict. And I owe a great debt to my mentor who wrote advanced praise. So Peter Selby from Camich. And I met him very early on in my career. And I remember being in his office saying, well, I can't help food addicts because it's only 12 steps does that. Only 12 steps. So there's nothing I can offer. And uh, he said, do you realize that 12 step programs don't work for 80% of the people who try them? You go, oh, oh, that's because they're not willing to be honest. It says so in the big book. (laughs) I was really bad. I was a big book. And he said, Sandra, do you realize the people you say that to, the people that you say, go out and suffer some more, you haven't hit rock bottom, you're not willing to do the work. You're saying that to somebody who's suffering so horribly. And you're telling them that the only way it's going to work is this program where 80% of people fail. It's actually cruel. And I, that was one of the greatest gifts I ever got. Such Such a good reminder, right? That we need to look outside of our own confirmation bias and have some flexibility in our thinking and be, like you said, everybody, there's room for everybody at the table and be willing to hear somebody else's viewpoint, right? That we don't necessarily have to agree with it, but we have to respect it. I've never walked in your shoes, Sandra, but I certainly respect your lived experiences and know that those in those lived experiences inform how you work with clients. I'm here to honor it all day long. It may not be how I work with people, but I don't think that it's wrong. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So thinking about that and like how there are such rigid definitions maybe of abstinence and recovery out there. And again, like relating it back to the body and maybe even like something about like weight and, you know, whatever that might be. How do you help your clients break up with the scale? Like really let go of that need to chase a specific number. Like how can, like, what are some of the things you say to them? Or like, what are some of the things you do? I know. I feel like I could do a whole book on this. So as you both know, I worked at Renaissance. So Renaissance was the first inpatient treatment program in Canada. So I had the honor of helping to co-create that program along with Dr. Vera Tarman. And I executed the program for a year at the treatment house. And that was probably one of the most rewarding years of my career because 
It was an all women's center. It was so safe. And some of the most beautiful souls you'll ever come across are people trying to recover from their addiction. And so in the house, we had people addicted to drugs, alcohol, and then food. And so for the food addict, they would come in and for 28 days, we weighed and measured every single ounce they ate. They were never left alone. They always had a buddy when they went to meetings. Like there was no chance to ever go up. And then on the 28th day, they would get weighed, unfortunately, because we needed the data. And I would try to counsel many of them, listen, you're going home. This is not a piece of information. <laughs> you Like we can't, I begged the center, you can't weigh them and then let them go into the real world. But I lost that battle. And what I saw were you'd have two people try, you know, eat exactly the same. And one person would drop a significant amount of weight and one would drop very little. And of course, the one who dropped just a few pounds felt like a complete failure. And it broke my heart because I had witnessed a transformation. I witnessed somebody who walked differently, acted differently, spoke differently, had overcome fears and traumas, had a huge, you know, so much peace around food. And yet that scale told them that they had failed. And that was such an eye opener for me that the scale is an absolute inaccurate measure of your hard work and your success. Also, I often tell people about the rocking chair test. So when you're, you know, 90 years old on your front porch on your rocking chair, how many, and you look past, you know, at your life, how many years do you want to be lamenting your body, fearing food, fighting food, dieting, eating not what you want? We've all been there where you look at pictures and you're like, oh, I can't, I can't stand these pictures. And you look 10 years later and you're like, oh my God, it's beautiful. And I had no idea, right? We all do that. And then we get the current pictures and we hide them. And, and, and then we look back and we don't realize that. And I always say, my weight is none of my business. My business is to eat the best food I can get my hands on, move my body regularly because for my mental health and wherever my weight ends up, it ends up. And my real work, the real work isn't following a strict diet. The real work is enjoying this body today. Because I'm never getting this day back. I'm never getting it back. It is to to love and honor this body that become unconditionally, unconditionally. Um, you know, I just came back from Barbados, and I love wearing my two piece, and I love wearing my one piece. And there was a time where I would never go swimming in the ocean without a cover up, right? Because I couldn't be lying down and then get up and then walk to the water. And now I don't really care. I don't, this is a body. This is a 50 year old body. And if, if you're not okay with it, I can't help you because I've only got so many summers left and I'm enjoying every single one of them. I love that so much. Talk to us a little bit more about mindfulness and spirituality. You certainly devote a particular part of your book on it. And I think Sometimes it can, we over intellect, like, you know, we really over intellectualize these concepts and we're thinking like, you know, is it religion? What does spirituality mean to me? So can you tell us like, are there exercises we can do? Like, how do we create a mindfulness practice or spirituality practice? Yeah. So I always, I like to frame it in this way. 
we are physical beings, we are mental beings, and we are spiritual beings. And so everybody accepts that we are physical beings and our bodies need to be cared for. We all accept that we need water, we need to brush our teeth, bathe, we need to take care of our bodies. So there's not too much convincing there. We're more and more aware that we have to take care of our mental health, right? In a world where we're hyper-focused about what we put in our mouths, we have to spend just as much attention on what we feed our minds, what we're reading, what we're watching, who we're listening to, how that colors and shapes our world. But what what are we doing for our spiritual life? You are a spiritual being. So what are you doing for that? And just like there's many roads to recovery, there are many roads to spirituality. There's actually no wrong way to be spiritual. For some people, it's nature. It's just being out and in touch with the earth, touching it, being in the water, seeing it. For other people, it could be finding your way. And I've been a spiritual seeker my whole life. And I started out in 12-step programs and I will be forever grateful to them because my parents were not available to raise me. So the 12 steps raised me. That actually gave me a Oh, this is how you live? Oh, this is how you apologize? Like I had no idea. I was a 30-year-old woman who was no longer using food as a coping mechanism. So I had no coping mechanisms as a theory. It was really scary time for me. And those 12 steps were the recipe, but I, I graduated. I almost say like I graduated in a way and I needed more. I was thirsty for more. And so uh, for a short time, I was a Vipassana meditator. And so that's where the 10 day silent meditation retreat came in and where I learned that nothing in, in life is permanent, nothing. Everything arises, peaks, and then falls away, including cravings, including thoughts and anxieties. And I need, but I learned in those 10 days, two or three simple concepts, but I couldn't just learn them intellectually. I had to actually experience them across 10 days. And then from there, I did the Course in Miracles, which was, I don't know if I did in that order, because Course in Miracles was one of the hardest spiritual things I have ever done. I don't know if you're familiar with The Course in Miracles. Oh, okay. So it's a big, thick text. And there is a meditation for every day for 365 days in the year. So Marianne Williams made it popular, but it is, in fact, the the person who wrote it, they they don't make profit from it. They're not named in the book. They feel that it was divinely inspired. Very difficult. And now I've moved into quantum meditating. So I'm always evolving. So I've been, like I said, for 20 years. And I always encourage my clients, what speaks to you? What interests you? And as soon as you put it out there, the teacher will come. The ideas will come. You just have to be open to it. And, you know, before we started this interview, I was talking about the Airbnb. I was in Barbados and they had a stack of books that obviously people had left there. And right there was a book by Wayne Dyer. And I'm a huge fan. And I went, oh my gosh, this was left for me. And I've been devouring this book about manifesting and understanding your worth. And I'm like, I can't believe how kind the universe was for me to leave me this book. And then in return, I left my book and I said a little prayer over it that this this fall into the right hands of who needs to read this book at this time. And so when you're a spiritual seeker, you see everything as a miracle. You understand that you you just take the step forward and then the path is illuminated, the doors open, the people come, and you just be in a state of wonder. That's also meditation. I remember a couple of years back, it must have been pre-pandemic, I went to New York for my birthday. 
Manhattan. And I just said, for the next three days, I'm going to walk in complete wonder. And of course, all I ever did was end up in Central Park, (laughs) as I knew I would. (laughs) But the things I saw and the people I met and how I experienced things for me was the spiritual experience. So I think you're right. We intellectualize it too much. We think it's a discipline. I think you open your heart, you open your mind, and you let it come to you what will work best for you. I think my next journey is Buddhism. I, I have a strong feeling that that's next. It's maybe one that one I haven't conquered yet, but I'm going to be a forever student. Forever. I don't ever want to finish. I always say, when you're done, you're done. So I'm not going to be done. <laughs> I'm never going to be done learning. <laughs> I always think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how self-actualization is at the very tippy top, right? And so it's this you know, it's all about self-development and self-development. You know, there's always room to grow. I always think of life as like a video game, you know, like just keep leveling up. It's, you know, it's, and every time you have like a, a bump in the road or whatever, it's like one of the bosses, right? And you have to like figure it out. Maybe you don't get it right the first time, but you, you know, you often get a redo or you can shift and, and try something else out. And I think, you know, finding our way through mindfulness and spirituality can be much the same, right? It's like we pursue something and maybe that's helpful. And then like we run into a stumbling block or maybe it no longer fulfills our needs. Like maybe we've outgrown it and then we move on to the next thing, whatever that might be. And yeah, I mean, I'm excited to hear about your, your journey into Buddhism. I was just grateful to hear that maybe I don't necessarily have to go on a 10 day, no speaking retreat and I can find it in a different way. See, there you go. Me (laughs) over-intellectualizing. I like to do really hard things. (laughs) Last spiritual retreat, we were guided on a five-hour meditation, five hours. And I had no idea when we we got came out of it. It was like, okay, it's been five hours. I mean, no, I didn't even believe them. I'm like, no, let me check. And it was five hours. And I mean, I was glowing. I don't even think I my feet touched the pavement when I was done. But yeah. So, I mean, I, but start small. I don't want to intimidate anybody. I can tell you where I started. 20 years ago, I meditated for three seconds because I was told I had to. And I used to do three seconds. I would say, God, come into my thoughts, come into my words, come into my actions. Good, done. And up I would get, that's all I could do. So three, three seconds is enough too. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Okay, so we need to talk about the pillar of support, the support network. And in your book, you definitely go into detail about 12-step programs and you really let your readers know, like you repeat it over and over again, like this is a community that's already there. You can join it. And as you've said, and we know like that's where you started was in the 12-step room. So out of curiosity, I'm really curious to know, like where do you find community now? And if, if some of our listeners are not 12-step joiners, are there alternative communities that they should be looking at or could look for that we should know about. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, 12 step is 24 seven, especially now that they've all gone on zoom and it's never been easier. Cause in my day I had to drive to a basement. I had to sit in a room and then they said, are there any newcomers? I had to stand up. It was like mortifying, but now you can do it on zoom. So where do I have my community? My community is definitely a very spiritually based community and it's whatever I'm practicing at the time. So I'm really looking for out there concepts. I'm really pushing the boundaries, but I've been at this for 20 years. 
Now, for those of you who are looking for communities outside of 12-step programs, I think a great place to start is on Dr. Vera Tarman's Facebook page, Sugar Free, I'm sweet enough. There's so many resources on that page. It's incredible. And of course, everyone is welcome in my community at uh, sandralia.com. And I, I think both of you have communities as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you just, if you start with Dr. Tarman's uh, free Facebook page, she's got a robust resource page for you. So talk to us a little bit more about self-love because I think that is something you're such a huge advocate of. How do I know or how do I get to a place where I start to love myself more? What would let someone know that they're having that wild love affair with themselves? Uh, Yeah. So at the end of the day, the most important relationship you're ever going to have in this lifetime is you already know, right? It's with yourself. And so we universally get, everyone agrees with that. Yes, I am definitely the most important relationship I'm ever going to have. And the way that you relate to yourself shows up at your work. It shows up in your romantic relationships. It shows up in your friendships. It shows up in your health, everything. It's always a reflection of how you feel about yourself. So if everyone agrees that this is the most important relationship you'll ever have, then the next question is how much time, energy, and effort do you put into it? And that's where I get, oh, I don't have time for me. I got to take care of everybody else. I got to make sure everyone's happy and they've got what they need because I'm not going to feel okay if I'm happy on my own. (laughs) So that becomes the real question. And as humans, we're all looking for unconditional acceptance, right? There's nothing that feels better than when you're in a relationship, whether it's romantic, friendship, or family. And I have a few people in my life like that who always believe the best about me. They always see the best in me. Even when I'm a stinker and I mess up and I like really blow everything to bits, they come around and they're like, we know something's going on. That's not you. We see, we see past that. We still love you unconditionally. So as humans, we're all searching for that. I believe that if you do not have it for yourself, you cannot receive it and you cannot give it. And so all the conditions that we put on ourselves, all the judgments, the harsh judgments we put on ourselves, we put it on other people. We absolutely do. I was at a family event and I was wearing a sleeveless top and I was playing with the kids' ribbons. And, you know, I have jiggly, loose skin under my arms because, you know, I used to weigh over 100 pounds more and it's really, it's jiggly. And I don't care. (laughs) And I had a very close family member. She was mortified by my jiggly arms more she just and she finally like she couldn't hold it anymore she's just like can you stop playing with those ribbons and I'm like why why do you want me to stop what's going on (laughs) she's just she couldn't and it's just a reflection of herself she's I know you know she's shared but she hates her body she hates the way she eats she's filled with so much judgment she hides under layers and layers and here was a woman in front of her joyfully showing everyone her flappy arms and she couldn't stand it she could not stand it and you know luckily for me that didn't start a big fight because I can see past that but could you can imagine how her self-hatred projected on me could have went kaboom in that living room filled with you know, toddlers and grandparents and all of that. But I just laughed it off because I can see it. So it will be very hard for her to accept unconditional love because she doesn't have it for herself. And 
I'm going to just go back to the William Goldberg quote. It's very hard to change in a constructive manner when motivated by shame, guilt, or hate. How many of us have started crazy diets? You know, you stock the fridge with foods you don't even like. You're going to eat in a way that is unpleasing to you because you are filled with what? Shame, guilt, and hate. No one starts it because they're like, I love myself. I accept myself. And when you do that, there's no urgency to lose weight, right? So when I hear a client say, oh, but I have to be this weight by this day or for my wedding, that's fueled by self-hatred, right? Because if you're okay with yourself as you are, what's the rush? Where is the rush? So definitely that self-love, I think that's everyone's spiritual work. We're all searching for the perfect diet. This is much harder. And I remember working with Dr. Sandy Van. Her and I have a program for cognitive behavioral therapy to address compulsive overeating. And she always says that is, trust me, it's not the diet. (laughs) This is the hard work, changing your perspectives, changing the way you look at yourself, changing the way you look at food. This is always a a question that I love to have people ask and have, or to ask people and have answered because, you know, there are, I think that there are those of us and our clients, you know, whomever, where they had love in the home as children Mm -hmm. and somewhere along the line, like you had said, like lost themselves or whatever, but there was always love there. Even if the parents were doing the best they could, but really weren't awesome, you know, or whatever. But then I... Yeah, exactly. They're human. I think, oh God, thank God. Like they say these days, you only have to get it like 30% correct, you know, (laughs) deal or like, you know, for your kids. And I'm like, oh, exactly. Good enough. Exactly. But then I also think about people where there was no love Mm -hmm. in the home. Right. And that from those very early days, like, and I, and I talk to my clients, you know, zero to 25, that's when our brain is literally in development and it's growing, pruning, growing, pruning. And those wires are being formed and rutted and, you know, mm-hmm. all of that. And I think, you know, somebody who falls into that camp, hears this idea of self-love and is like, the people that were supposed to love me the most have zero love for me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So there's something internally or etern- even eternally wrong with me? How do I even begin the self-love place where I feel like people who maybe experienced love have an idea of what that can sound like or look like versus the others. And I don't know if you've encountered the difference with people you've worked with. Uh, I would, I would agree with that. I think, you know, that's where then we really, what happens to us as children, right? So children have to make sense of their world, but children lack wisdom and they lack perspective. So if you grow up in a home that's highly dysfunctional, where you're not loved, you have to make sense of that. And it's very simple. Children just decide, I'm not lovable. It's my fault. Clearly, they can't. You know, in my case, I couldn't possibly have thought my mother has bipolar disorder. She's unmedicated. And my father has a rage problem. Like, no, it's like me. And as a little girl, I decided, well, if I could just be perfect enough, then she'll get better and she'll love me and it'll all be okay. And so I tried to be perfect enough and it never worked. So I assumed obviously it was my fault. Now, when we become adults, that's when we have to rewrite the story and we have to go back and we have to look at that inner child because we still carry that inner child and we have to help raise our own inner child, give that little child inside of us the unconditional love. We literally have to raise ourselves and then we have to look back and we have to apply the wisdom and we have to apply the perspective. And sometimes we have to apply a lot of forgiveness, a lot of forgiveness that they were, you know, mere humans doing the very best that they could. 
I'm a parent and I can tell you it is the hardest job I've ever had and probably the job where I messed up the most. It's literally the most important thing that I've ever done and I've never messed up more than as a parent. And that's me with with my therapy and waiting to have a baby and all the support. So my parents, immigrants to this country who didn't speak English, who came from traumatic childhoods, they had no chance. They had no chance. So where can our listeners find you, Sandra? Yeah. So very easily, sandraalia.com. So S-A-N-D-R-A-E-L-I-A.com. My business is my name. And that's really, really important to me because I stand behind everything that I do, even my book, like every single word. I remember we were a week out to going to final print and they changed. There's a lot of images in my book and they changed an image in my book that was stigmatizing. It was the, I almost blacked out. It was the weirdest thing because I get the PDF. They're like, oh, print ready. It's going to go just, here's your final look. And it was, instead of trigger foods, they decided to put a hamburger with a line through it. And the room started going dark and I could feel my heart and everything because I didn't know if I had gone to print and I'm like, like a panic attack, right? Because so stigmatizing to assume that anybody living with obesity or anybody living with food, I need to tell them like, I would so gross. It was like the grossest image I'd ever seen in my life. And, and I, afterwards, when I finally caught my breath and I didn't, I got on a chair and I thought, wow, that's how important anything I put my name on. Like it's, you know, I can't, I can't be at the mercy of a publisher who says, no, but this will sell more. I don't care. I don't care. Like I can't, it it just, it'll sell less then. But luckily it's a number one bestseller. So it's definitely reaching people's hearts and minds. So I guess if we want to word our signature question for you, it would be if I was going to tell or you were going to tell a younger version of yourself something about never enough, what would be the message that you would give young Sandra? Oh, there's nothing wrong with you. There never was anything wrong with you. You are perfect as you are. You are lovable. Just keep being you. It doesn't matter. Nothing matters except that beautiful spark and that joy for life. And yeah, just there was, you were perfection. You were and you are and you always be. We're all, we're all perfection in our imperfect ways. And when we fall short, Gosh, that's when you pour as much love and compassion as you can on yourself so that every day is a good day. The other thing I love, you know, when Molly was speaking is every morning the sun rises. Oh, it's like a shower. It's like, oh, it just washed away yesterday. The sun has rised. Here's another chance. I got another chance today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. So nice to speak with you again. Yeah, I love speaking to both of you. I learn from you and I really feel like I'm with my people when I speak to you. So it's always a pleasure and a joy. Oh, same. We feel the same way, Sandra. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>